Hey, Prime members, you can listen to America Change Forever ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. This week, the Department of Homeland Security under scrutiny for a program allegedly gathering intelligence domestically. This is a story first reported by Politico, but confirmed by CBS News. According to the reporting that we have, for years, DHS has run a virtually unknown program that gathers domestic intelligence. It allowed DHS officials to seek interviews with just about anyone in the U.S., whether they be in local jails, federal prison, or an immigrant detention center. And the DHS officials could do so by circumventing lawyers, which, of course, raises civil liberties concerns. Now, there were DHS employees who were concerned about this program, and that's why it is now coming to light, putting DHS's Office of Intelligence and Analysis, otherwise known as I&A, under the microscope. Kerry Bachner, who was the career senior legislative advisor to the DHS Undersecretary for Intelligence, is here with us today. Currently, she is the CEO of the Bachner Group. Carrie, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Do you have concerns about this program? I do. I have constitutional uh, concerns with regards to the government engaging with American citizens. Why do you think DHS has or had a program like this in the first place? I honestly do not know. Um, I think that DHS INA sometimes wants to be a little bit more than what they are in the intelligence community. Um, They are seen a lot of times as the stepchild uh, in the community, um, as analytic support. And so maybe this was a chance where they found some sort of loophole and exploited that and expanded and started and created this program to make themselves a little bit more relevant in the IC. That is just what I think about DHS, INA, and how the workers and how it fits within the IC, how they feel about themselves. Okay, and you testified repeatedly to members of Congress that INA didn't collect intelligence in the U.S. That is correct. We uh, started a program called the State and Local Fusion Center, um, where we put a federal asset in the hands of state and locals. And um, Congress was very concerned with regards to domestic intelligence, uh, civil rights, civil liberties, and privacy as it pertained to the American citizens. And we, rightfully so, uh, we told them, them meaning Congress, that 
these intel analysts, even though they are a federal asset of the intelligence community, they were there to help support the state and local fusion centers, which was run, operated, and owned by the state for any um, intel-related matters as it concerned to the ongoing cases for state and local. But they were no way collecting intelligence or conducting interviews on any American citizens. Uh, I guess from my recollection, during the time you were there, that time period, there were concerns that the Obama administration wasn't doing enough uh, in terms of intelligence gathering uh, as it relates to domestic terrorism. How do you respond to that? I I don't think that they weren't doing enough, and I don't think that they were doing enough. Um, you really can't pull the adversary and say, what did we do to thwart an attack? So with regards to measuring how how well or, or not well um, an, intel- an intelligence agency is, is demonstrating their job, um, especially an agency like INA because they're in a support role, you can't really measure that. What I can say is that um, I've seen it on, on both administrations where it's, it's unfortunate that the information and the um, agency tends to get pressure and then it starts to politicize things. What, what do you mean by politicizing things? So it takes a while for an intelligence product to be written. You have to ensure that you uh, follow up with the source. You have to verify the source. And then you have to understand where all of this uh where all of this raw intel goes um, on paper to actually create an actionable product for um, the user or the customer, whether it be state, local, tribal, municipalities, or even the federal government. Um, So uh, it could take six months, it could take two years, depending upon, you know, when the product is, is released and finished. When I say politicized, a lot of um, agencies, um, not agencies, I'm sorry, administrations, uh, wait for a product to be released and whether or not it appears to be more right or more left, then they blame that particular administration in which it was written. So depending upon what the reaction is with the customer, that's how they sort of move the needle um, with the politi- politi- politicalization of the product. What we've seen over the last several years is the number of domestic terrorism cases that the FBI is investigating has risen. Um, in fact, I think... I believe, according to the Government Accountability Office, the number of domestic terrorism cases has risen over 300% between 2013, I believe, and 2021. How do you stop this domestic terrorism threat if you have, if you don't have an INA gathering intelligence domestically? Well, INA in general, what they are supposed to be doing and what their mission is, is they are, they have the ability to reach inside the IC um, in its classified portals and look for specific information that pertains to a ongoing investigation or, um, you know, a a new investigation, whatever it is, even if it's not even an investigation. Um, And that, that is, that is their, I want to say their very special authority um, to include the fact that INA wears two hats. Um, It's the undersecretary for intelligence, and they're also the chief intelligence officer. So that individual in that particular um, agency has the ability to 
reach inside law enforcement from a federal perspective. So you have ICE, TSA, Coast Guard, Secret Service, the ones that are actually operational, and look at what evidence and collection they are um, getting from um, nefarious activities. So for instance, if somebody's on the border, they're looking through their pocket litter, they see that there's um, some disturbing information, uh, that ICE agent or or whomever it is at the border goes into a particular portal, puts that information in, um, and shares it with um, the folks at INA. INA grabs that information, can link that to something that may be of interest to a state and local, and then they can go ahead and make and make those connections. So INA has a very strong role with regards to what they do when it comes to domestic terrorism. Um, now, I don't think that that should ever stop. I think what what needs to occur is that INA needs to look at exactly what their authorities are and stay within those lanes. Um, and, and that's, I think, that's the, the issue with this particular program is that they're not staying within their lanes. But is it, but is it just INA or are there other intelligence gathering organizations, agencies within the U.S. government, within law enforcement that, in your opinion, don't stay in their lanes? Most definitely. And I, and I think I don't want to necessarily oust any particular agency, but I think, um, you know, Hollywood sensationalizes a lot of agencies. So a lot of folks think, a lot of Americans and just the the general public think that agencies can do certain things because they watch programs and they watch movies that sensationalizes what agencies can do. So for instance, I was at my child's preschool and this lady tells me, oh, I feel safe because our security is linked to Homeland Security. I don't even know what that means because from an operational perspective, the only people that are coming when their crime is occurring should be state and local and maybe federal if there is a a terrorism related incident, but Homeland Security has zero equities with a preschool. Um, So it's, it's, it's things like that and, or events like that, or conversations like that, that occur. And so I feel that agencies sort of play into that part. And when the American public doesn't know exactly what agencies are supposed to do, they just, it, they, they, they trust the government. That's, that's what it comes down to, as they should. Well, according to the GAO, and I want to get your reaction to this, further actions are needed to strengthen FBI and DHS collaboration to counter threats. In other words, information sharing isn't what it should be. Would you agree with that? I agree. I, I think it's a cultural issue um, and it's a, it's a social issue, a cultural, not meaning an ethnicity issue, but more of a operational intel analyst um, and then, of course, agency uh, issue. So um, a lot of times you can call up an agency and they'll say, this is what I have. And they'll say, well, Uh, give me everything. And then you ask them what they have and they have nothing. So um, a lot of information sharing, which is unfortunate, uh, is only shared at specific levels. And those those levels are normally, and what I've seen, um, is through relationships. And then, of course, like I said, the cultural FBI and state and local don't always play nice together because the state and locals a lot of times don't feel like they should be data entry clerks for the FBI. Um, and that's how the FBI sees them in, in certain in certain times. But weren't there, you know, post 
there was this concern about a lack of information sharing within the intelligence apparatus in law enforcement. Why do you think that persists? Is it just a bunch of big egos who don't want to share? I mean, what what is what has happened all these years later that now we have these reports coming out, whether they're dealing with January 6th or other issues, where you, you see this lack of information sharing that persists? Yeah, well, information is viewed as currency in the intelligence community, to be quite honest. So um, with that, a lot of the times, like you said, is it is it ego? Is it, um, you know, s- seniority? Is it position? It, it's all of that, to be quite honest. And you know, after 9-11, DHS was created and so was the DNI. And the DNI's mission is to ensure that information sharing and also anything from a policy perspective is shared within the intelligence community, um, which is at the time was 17 agencies and now it's 18 agencies. So that's the role of the DNI. Um, and, and they're they have to ensure that all the policies that are in place, that everyone shares information that needs to be shared, et cetera, et cetera, to have actionable intelligence. And going back to your point, um, I, I believe it is that. I believe it's a combination of a few things. Like I said, it's it's the egos, it's the it's the agency itself, um, it's relationships, um, and and. That's that's unfortunate. Um, we have human beings behind this complete apparatus. Gary Bachner, thanks for your time. Thank you. For the last year, a DOJ task force has been working to hold Kremlin-aligned Russian elites accountable, not only for their support of Vladimir Putin, but also for their efforts to evade sanctions. Task Force Klepto Capture was intended to put pressure on Russian elites who would, it was hoped, in turn put pressure on Putin to change course in Ukraine. Charges have been brought against 35 individuals, assets have been seized, but is it working to change Putin? Max Bergman is the director of the Europe-Russia-Eurasia program in the Stewart Center on Northern European Studies. And he is formerly of the State Department. Max, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. So do you think this DOJ task force is actually working because you still see the war raging in Ukraine? So I think think it is. And I think that what is uh, happening is uh, there's a lot of focus on sanctions enforcement that is happening, I think, behind the scenes. Uh, where you're probably not going to see as many announcements, but a lot of this is continuing to, continuing to track uh, Russian money and resources, uh, Russian oligarchs, where their uh, re- revenue is, where they're moving their money. Um, but there's also been, I think, uh, a rapid response from uh, the kind of uh, oligarch community, those that have been targeted uh, to get their money out of uh, Western banks and out of the potential reach of uh, sanctions enforcement and, and, and the long arm of the law of, of the United States. And I think, you know, what we had seen kind of before this war was, I think, the sense from a lot of uh, powerful Russian figures is that, well, if they just sort of move stuff around enough, they would be able to amass their money and no one would really come after them. But we've seen I think be, seeing the real determination from the West, I think, has really prompted a shift. And we've seen a lot of Russian oligarchs, you know, uproot themselves from London and other major cities and, and relocate to uh, whether it's Turkey or the, the Gulf or, or other parts of the world uh, to try to not be um, uh, 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 close to U.S. law enforcement or potentially at the reach of U.S. law enforcement. So it's it, it is definitely having an impact on these oligarchs. Even some of them uh, specifically have had to sell their football slash soccer teams. We know that, but w- the pressure 
doesn't seem to be building on Putin, or is it, in your opinion? So I, I think the, the first part of your question is exactly right. Like we, we saw Russian oligarchs uproot themselves rather quickly. And I think the most high profile case of this was Roman Abramovich, uh, who is the owner of Chelsea Football Club, one of the biggest uh, 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 sporting teams in the world, um, rapidly divesting himself of ownership. Uh, it's now owned by Chelsea's now owned by an American uh, and in relocating from London uh, to Russia. Uh, and I think that that happened across the board. Then the question becomes, and part of the theory of the case with uh, oligarch sanctions <laughs> was that by going after the Kremlin elite, the people who had basically gotten their wealth and were doing really well because of their relationship to Vladimir Putin, because of their connection to the Kremlin, that if they were, if you put the squeeze on them, that that would uh, potentially create a, a source of weakness for for Putin. And I think what we can say pretty clearly is that. Putin doesn't feel, uh, I think, all that much pressure uh, and that the oligarch sanctions uh, haven't really resulted in a major um, uh, uh, vulnerability for the Kremlin. That said, it is still something that Putin has to be nervous about. And, and, and I think we have indications that he has been nervous about this in the, in the uh, uh, early days of the war. Uh, he said some very threatening things uh, to oligarchs, I think essentially putting them on notice. And I think that's in part a recognition that uh, you don't want to have a bunch of billionaires that have a lot of money and like to scheme, uh, uh, thinking they can get away with a lot of stuff. So I think he is has an eye toward the Russian elite and is sort of nervous about what they will do. But he's also very uh, quick to threaten them. So I think the Russian elite feels... Uh, probably aggrieved by the war in Ukraine, by what Russia has done, but also is, you know, they're very cautious. They want to protect themselves and their money and aren't willing to move against the Kremlin. But And so that you could say they didn't work in that sense. But I think what it has done uh, is created a certain vulnerability within the Kremlin that should things get bad enough, there are probably a group of very wealthy people that are somewhat disgruntled that that could help fund or fuel a potential uh, challenger to Putin or, or create an alternative. So I think, you're, you, you know, the, while the, the cracks haven't really emerged, uh, you're still, uh, you know, reducing some of the resilience of the Kremlin. Um, one just other point there is that it's not simply uh, whether this has an impact on the Kremlin. It's really that, that oligarchs were a source of Russian influence in the West. Uh, and that's a critical thing, that part of this was just simply protecting ourselves from Russian influence as opposed to trying to uh, really weaken the Kremlin. Do you think U.S. officials are surprised by Putin's how resilient, and of course I don't mean that in a good way, but how resilient he has been through all this? So... I think yes and no. I think there is sort of always a bias toward um, toward the status quo uh, in the intelligence community amongst analysts of a region of a country, especially of autocracies, frankly, because when you know if you have people that have studied uh, Russia for for years and decades and in in any sort of autocracy that has been around for a long time, uh, you have folks that have really focused on understanding the regime. And it's really then hard to see how this regime ceases to be. Uh, and I think there's this, I think there was there's sort of a stability bias within a lot of analysis of Russia. So I think there's an underlying assumption in the U.S. Uh, and in other places that Putin is quite stable and isn't going anywhere. And I don't think there was really ever an expectation that this war would would um, uh, threaten his position. I think that in some ways remains. But I will say if you look back on the past year, and if you were to have told me a year ago that Russia would have nearly nearly or roughly 200,000 casualties of killed and wounded in Ukraine, it was going to have been beat back by Ukrainian forces, it was going to be diplomatically isolated, it's going to see its economy uh, tumbling, uh, it's going to have its oil and gas revenues cut, cut and gas cut off uh, uh, sales to Europe. I would have really uh, uh, said, you know, Putin's Putin might be in danger. Now, I may be that that assessment may be right, 
but it's really hard to tell until it is proved right or is determined right. So I think it's always the air, the way to air is always on the side of caution that Putin isn't going anywhere. And I think that's the right assumption. But this war has definitely decreased the resilience and strength, I think, of the Kremlin and of him. And if Ukraine continues to make or makes major advances on the battlefield and really bursts the legitimacy of, of Putin of being this, the bubble of him being sort of seen as this great leader uh, that, that doesn't really make mistakes, uh, I think I think the regime. You would have to say the regime would be in real trouble, and whether that amounts to regime collapse, uh, transition, protests in the streets, it's always hard to determine. Uh, you know, life has lots of surprises, but it's one where um, Putin would be very nervous about his position in office, uh, especially if Ukraine uh, makes advances. What do you What do you think will finally? end this conflict? And do you think we're getting closer to the end? I think it is very uh, hard to tell right now. I think what we what is pretty clear is that Russian strategy right now is to not have the war end, is to uh, basically hold the territory that they have. I think they're looking to make some territorial gains. They're, of course, on the offensive right now. But essentially, to um, to be to have the war settle into a, a frozen conflict uh, where Western support uh, begins to fade uh, for Ukraine. We turn our attention elsewhere. Russia is able to really um, you know, take a few years, build up its military again, and then have another go. But in the meantime, sort of block Ukraine's progress toward being a European state, toward its, uh, its efforts to advance toward the European Union, its efforts to join NATO, in its efforts to rebuild its economy and have Ukraine basically be stuck in a perpetual uh, war. That is, that is, I think, Russia's goal here. Uh, and that, you know, to eventually maybe uh, make more progress in Ukraine, but over a number of years. Uh, for Ukra- so that's the, that's the really uh, terrible scenario in which we kind of have an endless war on our hands. Uh, and that's the Kremlin goal. I think for Ukraine... It's the idea is that the Russian military is being weakened significantly right now. I mentioned more than 200,000 casualties or around 200,000 casualties. We're also seeing the amount of equipment losses in Russia being really severe. At the same time, Russia is being hit by extraordinary sanctions and export controls, which is hitting its defense industry and its ability to produce new missiles and new tanks. And so while the Russian military is getting sort of essentially crappier, uh, their Ukrainian military hopefully is getting better. It's getting more Western equipment. And so we see the two militaries going in opposite directions. And the hope is that Ukraine this year will be able to absorb this current Russian offensive, go on the counteroffensive, take back more territory, put Crimea, I think, under threat, uh, and then uh, be able to conclude the war, be able to basically get to territorial borders that Ukraine can live with, and then have the ability to threaten Russia so that Russia feels the need uh, to uh, to to a to, you know to not attack Ukraine, but maybe to have a, a long term settlement. That is, I think, the the hopeful case, and that's the case that I think would potentially threaten the survival of the Putin regime because that would be a clear defeat for Russia. Um, and I still think it's sort of all to play for on the battlefield of of how this will turn out. In the meantime, the Biden administration has been. Um asserting itself on the international stage. Do you you think this conflict in Ukraine has helped President Biden's standing internationally or hurt it? Oh, I I think it's it's very much helped uh, the image and reputation of the United States. Uh, First and foremost in Europe, look, uh, this is, I think, a seminal year, or 2022 is a seminal year for the United States uh, uh, diplomatically in Europe. Uh, we demonstrated that we are indispensable to European security, um, and that that no that you know f- few countries can do what we can do, which is at sort of a drop of the hat with very little cost to ourselves, uh, something that no American really feels. Uh, provide Ukraine with you know, tens of billions of dollars of, of military and financial assistance, uh, turn the tide of a war with through our modern weaponry without even sending in an American soldier to, to fight or to or to train um, and really turn the tide of a battle 
that is is really important for for the future of the the world. And we've demonstrated our 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 economic strength and resilience, you know, in coming out of COVID, coming out of this recession. So I think the United States has right now sort of reestablished its reputation as being a global superpower, not on the wane, but but continuing to be on the rise. And the, all the talk of America in decline, I think, has been largely re- reversed. And that's critical, not simply for our friends in Europe, but around the world, uh, for China to sort of take us seriously, uh, to not uh, be overconfident in their abilities to challenge uh, the United States as being the leading world superpower, and also to you know, what, quote unquote, the global south of countries where, you know, aren't necessarily aligned with the United States, aren't necessarily aligned with China, sort of, you know, have relations with everyone, for them to see the power of the United States and the power of Europe uh, in in responding to this crisis, I think has been really critical. So I think this has done uh, a tremendous amount for America's standing in the world and for and for President Biden uh, in, in that in that case as well. But as you know, there are a lot of Republicans, a lot of uh, fiscal conservatives, if you will, who are saying we need to stop spending money in Ukraine. Um, Do they have a valid point? Uh, No, I don't think they do. And it's not because, you know, you can be concerned about fiscal responsibility. Uh, But this is, you know, this is not the United States. Uh, this is not like Iraq. We're not uh, sending our forces in, uh, being shot out, spending $10 billion a month uh, for, for an invading in a, another country. This is us uh, ensuring uh, uh, the security of Ukraine, but also the security of Europe. And we're doing so uh, by spending very little. When we talk about the spending, especially on the military side, let's be clear, that money is actually going to U.S. military contracts contractors to defense industry, which then produce uh, weapons in the United States. So to factory workers and other things in the United States who are then producing missiles and ammunition. Uh, And the equipment that we are sending is we're pulling it from the U.S. military. We're essentially modernizing the U.S. military by giving our older stuff to Ukraine. and, And so, you know, this is something that is actually, I think, will make the United States stronger. Uh, And fiscally, there's just no doubt that we can afford this. It's not requiring, it's not, you know, putting a real tax or toll um, on the American public at all. And this is something that, you know, we can, as as a world, you know, as a major global power, this is the sort of thing we can do on our sleep. And we're demonstrating that. And that. And if you are sort of against this spending, then you're essentially against the United States playing, you know, a leading global uh, role in the world. And that's a legitimate position, but that's a separate argument of whether we can afford it or not. Well, but we we can't, and this is a question from uh, some of the critics of the war in Ukraine. We, we can't solve all the problems of the world. Of, of course. And this is not, I think we can be very selective, uh, but this is uh, an area where we can have, have made it determined rightfully that we can make a tremendous difference and are making a tremendous difference uh, and that we have the capacity to do it. And, you know, we're not doing this for every conflict in the world. We're doing it for a country that we've had uh, a partnership with that wants to uh, align itself with the West, with the United States, with Europe. Um, and in it's a, a, pro- a struggle also against one of our major adversaries. This isn't just a random conflict that doesn't you know, really involve us. This is one of our major, major uh, foes in Russia. And by supporting Ukraine, we're effectively weakening one of our major adversaries. So this is also has tremendous geopolitical uh, advantage to us. And, you know, standing up for a democracy also sends a real image uh, message to China and other autocracies around the world uh, and other countries around the world about the, the strength of democracy. So I think we're, we're achieving a lot of things geopolitically uh, by this, what I would describe as a pretty meager uh, relative to our broader strength. Um, in terms of expenditure. Max Bergman, thanks for your time. Thanks so much. Turning now to Fox News, an organization that has been, well, it's been in the news quite a bit lately, whether it's the Dominion lawsuit. You might recall that Dominion has alleged in its lawsuit that during the 2020 presidential election, the right-wing talk channel recklessly disregarded the truth and pushed various pro-Donald Trump conspiracy theories about the election technology company because, quote, the lies were good for Fox business. In a statement on Tuesday of this past week, 
Fox News accused Dominion of distortions, misinformation, and misattributing quotes as part of an attempt to, quote, smear Fox News and trample on free speech and freedom of the press. Also, Tucker Carlson, a Fox News star, was given access to January 6th videos by Speaker Kevin McCarthy and used them on his program to try to show that there were sightseers storming the Capitol on January 6th. The message being, ah, the insurrection wasn't bad. The message being, oh, the insurrection wasn't as bad as people say it was. And was it even an insurrection? But remember, five police officers died as a result of what happened on January 6th. Let's talk about it with Arthur Delaney, who is with the Huffington Post. Arthur, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. I'm sure the American people by now have seen all these Fox News headlines. You know, it, it seems like right now, at least, that network is getting slammed in the press. What do you think this case is doing to Fox News as a whole. I know from reports that there are Fox employees who are very unhappy with the situation. And I know a lot of Fox News critics believe that all the criticism they've levied at at the network over the years has been vindicated by the recent revelations that Fox stars like Tucker Carlson say in private almost the opposite of what they say on their broadcasts about Donald Trump and his election lies. But I don't know what this ultimately means for Fox News because they've cultivated a viewership that is walled off from reality. So it's hard to say how it could affect them. You know, if you watch Tucker Carlson tonight, you don't see the kinds of ads that you see on other networks. It's it's stuff like, you know, my pillow. It's stuff that's already part of a right-wing ecosystem. So it's, it's not clear to me that you know, what would appear to be uh, devastating revelations to normal people. Where do you think Fox News goes from here? I mean, look at all of these revelations that um, while they were saying the election was stolen, they knew behind the scenes that there was no evidence of that. While they say they support President Trump behind the scenes, they're saying they hate him passionately. You know, what does this, do you still call Fox News news? I mean, you know, clearly they are reporting things that aren't true and they know it. I don't think they care. I, I think this week's Tucker Carlson Tonight broadcast about January 6th showed that they'll tell even bigger lies than they told before. But this this is a bit of a turning point for other people in the political media ecosystem. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who almost never says it. I don't, I don't know that he ever has criticized Fox News. He criticized Fox News, said it was a mistake for them to use the footage that way. The White House called out Tucker Carlson by name, which is unusual. And I I think there's a greater recognition that it's not a news organization in the same way that other news organizations are news organizations. Uh, Notwithstanding, there are many reporters who don't spout off in prime time the way Carlson and Sean Hannity do. There's clearly now a reckoning among people outside of Fox News with their relationship to Fox News. And I I have no idea if uh, Fox News itself is going to have a reckoning like that. Well, what do you you, you make of Rupert Murdoch um, saying or testifying under oath to the things that he has said? Essentially... You know, throwing some of his top executives and even stars at Fox News under the bus based on some of the statements that they made. I think that the cynicism that shows people have known that that was there. We're we're familiar with their business model of riling up their viewership 
And so it's, it's more like a confirmation. It's a confirmation of, of what was apparent before. For that reason, I'm not sure that it's, it's like a bombshell that changes things for Fox News or Rupert Murdoch themselves. But again, I am not, uh, I'm not actually a media reporter. So I, uh, you know, I cover Congress. I don't want to make any prediction. I, I don't know how this will shake out for them. But it is interesting how, based on the statements coming out of the House, contrasting those with what is coming out of the Senate in terms of Republicans in the Senate and the House, it's like the tale of two different cities. I mean, they, you know, you talked about Mitch McConnell's reaction, which is different than Kevin McCarthy's reaction. You know, it's, it, it's interesting how even Republicans are divided about this. That's true. Uh, but both in both the House and the Senate, there are those far-right lawmakers who subscribe to Donald Trump's lies about the election and about what happened on January 6th. But the difference is, in the Senate, those lawmakers have no power because Mitch McConnell's in charge. And in the House, because of the way the Speaker's elected, it only takes a handful of those right-wing members to control what happens because they have the ability to essentially uh, vacate the speaker's office and force a, a, a vote of no confidence. So just the way the two different chambers are set up gives the, the, the farthest right members much more power in the House. There's an upcoming budget battle where this will really come to a head and it will be interesting to see if McCarthy can even hang on. And I, I, the, uh, the stuff that's going on with January 6th and Tucker Carlson this week is a perfect illustration of the dynamic. Arthur Delaney, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Let's continue now with Sarah Ewo Weiss, a CBS News reporter covering the Treasury Department and economic policy. Sarah, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. All right. So how did the Fed chair do on the Hill? Uh, I don't think it was the kind of news that investors and Americans everywhere were really hoping to hear, uh, but it wasn't really a surprise. Essentially, he said that they could raise interest rates more than they previously expected, uh, and they could keep them higher longer. And that is something that obviously means more borrowing costs for Americans. uh, And also, it kind of tossed the markets into a frenzy following his remarks uh, before both the Senate and then the next day, the House. He sounds like a broken record, with all due respect. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because uh, he will repeat himself over and over and over again, and lawmakers will still ask the same questions. They want to know specifics, and he says they're going to follow the data. Uh, But I will say it's been a pretty tough year or more for the Fed. Uh, They had um, some projections on inflation cooling uh, not being uh, as persistent as it has been. And most of those projections have been wrong. And they've had to address that multiple times, uh, asking why why is inflation still what it is? How is it still persistent? Uh, And they've been basically saying that this is an unprecedented time with this pandemic uh, and the supply chain issues. Uh, Then, of course, the Uh, war in Ukraine that uh, launched even more uh, challenges when it comes to prices. Uh, So they've had a pretty tough time throughout a lot of the pandemic. First, when the pandemic hit, um, kind of stabilizing the economy, uh, and now coming out of it has been an extreme frustration. Um, But no, he he has been uh, addressing the fact they've been raising interest rates now for about a year. They started raising them at the meeting um, uh, in March a year ago. Uh, And so he's continuing to really have to defend the Fed over the past year. He he said that the full effects of our tightening so far are yet to be felt. Even so, we have more work to do. That's what he said on the Hill. That's it. Yeah, that's it. He um basically said we we knew before that they were going to be raising interest rates in 2023. They had signaled that at the end of last year, uh, but it was kind of expected that they might taper off early this year. Um, And and the first meeting that they had in February, they raised the interest rate, the federal funds rate, by a quarter of a percentage point, which was a smaller hike than they had been raising it at 
in the meetings at the end of last year. Last year, they they kind of tapered it off from three quarters of a percentage point to half a percentage point and then a quarter of a percentage point at, uh, in early February. Uh, but, you know, essentially, the, the signal here was they could actually go back up to another half a percentage point hike at their meeting later this month, uh, because they had been seeing some data that showed that inflation had been cooling some, and it is cooling in some divisions, some areas, uh, in terms of specifically on goods, uh, but it has been more persistent elsewhere. And so the measurements they looked at uh, more recently showing January's inflation reading uh, was more persistent than expected. Uh, it came in hotter than expected. And so, yeah, more work to be done. And the reality is, is it's not quite clear when exactly uh, that work will be finished. <laughs> yeah, and you you also reported this past week that the number of job openings decreased uh, to 10.8 million on the last business day of January. What what does that mean for the the average person out there looking for a job? Uh, it means they're about almost two jobs per unemployed person in this country. Uh, the reality is, though, is are those jobs that the people who are looking for jobs are looking for? There could be a mismatch in terms of those seeking employment and the employment that is available. Uh, and this has been a, a high number. It, we remain at record high openings across the economy um, since prior to the pandemic. Uh, so the the idea that it eased a little bit, I guess, is some good news. Uh, but overall, just a, a lot of uh, employers looking to fill positions and, and not having the workers to fill them. I, I think the, the way to look at this more closely, though, is the reality that this is just one of several pieces of data that the Fed is looking at when it goes to make its decision about hiking interest rates. So the high number kind of gives them a green light to continue hiking interest rates. Uh, because when you hike interest rate, it's supposed to slow the economy. Uh, that could boost unemployment, which is also a challenge because then you have people fearing the Fed pushing the United States into a recession. Uh, but if there are high job openings, that gives them more flexibility to do so. Uh, and so that is one piece of evidence that they're or data that they're looking at before their next meeting uh, that came in pretty high uh, and kind of helped them towards that idea that they could raise interest rates higher. Uh, the information that came out this week on that is also interesting uh, because it showed hiring has pretty much remained the same. There's still strong hiring numbers. Uh, the number of people who are quitting jobs remains at record highs as well, close to record highs as well. Um, it's decrease some, but people are feeling very comfortable in this tight labor market to continue quitting jobs. Uh, that's mostly in the business and professional service sector or in almost entirely, according to the most late, uh, recent reading. And the number of layoffs, the number of layoffs had ticked up slightly. Uh, we have been seeing those headlines about tech layoffs, uh, but that's a very small portion of the economy when you look at that big picture. Uh, so the number of layoffs ticked up ever so slightly, but still are real near, near real record lows in terms of layoffs. Uh, so it's not like uh, employers are looking and can cut jobs. I think there's still fear of being able to find people to, to fill positions and holding on to workers who already have that training and expertise uh, moving forward. Oh, I, I I know that you're from the great city of Pittsburgh. You're a Steelers fan, unless I have wrong information here. So being that you're from that great city, what would you tell the people of Pittsburgh about this economy and, and what should concern them and what might benefit them going You're forward? not wrong. I uh, did go to high school in Pittsburgh right across from that Steelers stadium. Uh, so uh, long, deep roots with that team. With that said, I will tell people in Pittsburgh, this is really a mixed bag economy. I, I wish I had better news for them at this time. Um, hopefully, we will have some better news moving forward. Um, so right now, I will say inflation does remain high. It is easing some. That is potentially the good news. I think they want it to ease more in terms of services. Uh, so that is something we're looking for more of a downward trend on that front. Uh, on the labor market side, it is a hot labor market for people. I think some people see headlines about specific companies laying off workers, and there is concern of a recession looking farther into the future. Uh, but a lot of that recession talk is extremely far away. And I think that's also good news for people uh, to be aware of. Yes, it is on uh, something that 
there are looming fears of. Uh, but the, the timeline on that has been kicked back multiple times now uh, based on the number of job openings and based on the number of people being employed and hired. Uh, and we'll get more data moving forward on that. So that would be the good piece of news. Uh, I think people just need to kind of hunker down still. And I wish that was <laughs> I had a more positive uh, information to share with a, a timeline on this. Um, but you know what? Uh, we, we've seen the the U.S. supply chains becoming more back in, in, in full swing after the pandemic. So that is a piece of good news. And, and I think people heading into the summer, while, while there is concern out there, people are not um, avoiding their vacations. They're going about their lives. And I think they should be doing that. Um, hopefully we'll see uh, the airline prices and everything continue to be go down rather than up on, on that front moving forward. Um, but of course, we see food prices are up and energy prices are often very volatile. Uh, so I don't want to put any kind of <laughs> predictions here on, on that front moving forward. But all in all, I think there's a lot more fear uh, that's based on headlines than reality out there right now. And uh, like I said many times before, we just hope the inflation continues on a downward trend um, as it has been some signals of. But I understand that is extremely hard for many people. Uh, people are definitely feeling that and have been for over a year now. Sarah Ewell Weiss, Pittsburgh Steeler fan. Thanks for your time. Thank you. That is America Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. You can hear us on Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124 every Saturday. For now, I'm Jeff Pegues, and that is how America Change Forever. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to America Change Forever ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Deviadaris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.